Let's pray. Our Father, perhaps we don't think often enough about the, the marvelous gift that you gave to us in Christ Jesus, God with us, who would come to live among us, to experience the reality of being trapped in a human body by your own gracious choice to experience what we experience, to be tempted as we are tested, but to be sinless, that you might be, that Christ might be our Savior and die for our sins. So Lord, we, we thank you and thank you for this journey through the Gospel of John. Thank you for what you have taught us. Thank you for your mercy to us and kindness to to share with us, to reveal to us who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us and to offer to us salvation. So, Lord, as we, we conclude this journey, we want to thank you for including us in the revelation of Jesus Christ. I pray now, Lord, that you would Laser our hearts onto the truth that you have for us today that we might apply it to our lives. This is the, the final, the epilogue that, that John realized through the prompting of the Holy Spirit was necessary for us, and it is. And so I pray, Lord, that we would take seriously what you have for us today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Perhaps you've heard the phrase and um, now you know the rest of the story. Maybe you don't. It was popularized by a ABC radio uh, broadcaster by the name of Paul Harvey who had an amazing uh, career of 57 years, still actually working when he was 90. And... Um, he was famous for popularizing obscure or forgotten stories, things that were really important and interesting but that not many people maybe knew about and he would, he would share those on his radio broadcast. One of his famous statements was, I've never seen a monument erected to a pessimist. I think that's a good one. Well, as you open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 21, we can say, and now, th now you know the rest of the story from John, because that's exactly what this is. And in, in fact, it's particularly the rest of the story about Peter. Because we're all left wondering, if, as we've studied through the gospel, we're all left wondering what, what became of Peter? Like, he denied the Lord. Was that it for him? Now, I know most of you sitting in here know all about Peter, so you're not asking that question, but the people who are reading the Gospel of John at first were wondering, and how could they take him seriously as church founder with such a major failure in his life? So... When we started out in this journey in John, we realized that the very first chapter is a prologue to the gospel, where John amazingly opens up to us uh, theological, um, a massive theological uh, proposition about who Christ is, and then proceeds to share with us the story of Christ among us. Now at the, at the end of the book, I mean, the gospel really ends with John chapter 20. John chapter 21 is, is an epilogue. It's, it's, it's possible that John actually added this a little bit after he completed his gospel work and the prompt on the, based on the prompting of the Holy Spirit through God's people to, because there were certain things going on that were misunderstandings about what Jesus said about John that uh, 
thinking that Jesus was going to come before John died. So as John was becoming old, there was a lot of frenzy going on, about eschatological frenzy, just like there is today. Everybody's saying Jesus is coming back really soon. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I just need you to know that believers have been saying that for 2,000 years, right? But we should always be looking for him because he could come back today. So this epilogue um, is an amazing sort of, in a sense, obscure and perhaps forgotten and only witnessed by a very few. It wasn't done in front of crowds. This is only known to some real insiders like John of what happened. No doubt, those who read it were as amazed as you will be today. In fact, even in it, there's an insertion in verse 24 of a commentary from likely some of John's younger disciples who make a comment. You'll see it when we read it. So if your Bibles are open, let's read John 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee, you probably know it by. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish For they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? 
When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He, said, he only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. So I said the we, the we is friends. There's a commentary by John's friends. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This is the word of God. How are you doing? Have you read it five times? Read John five times? You have one more week. <laughs> and you can do it. You can read it five times this week if you haven't even started. Read John, read it, read it five times. Read it, I urge you to read it. Okay. So let's, let's help, let's get some context here. All of the eyewitnesses to the Lord, to Jesus Christ, are probably dead now. With the exception of John, and, but likely at the publishing of this, or as this is circulated, John is probably dead too. They're all now gone. And the Holy Spirit prompted John to write this. Peter, Paul, gone. To provide for us an extended record of Jesus pushing the commission to the church. Urging the church to mission and how this really got traction. This is sort of an extended Great Commission text that, that John was prompted to write. It's, it's a reassurance to the early church that Jesus is all over this. The, this. the fingerprints of Jesus are all over this movement called the church. We're talking about 90 AD plus, 100 AD. We're talking about a long time after Jesus has ascended into heaven. Decades. That the church has been gaining some traction. And this is a reminder, this is a, a refresher, this is an assurance that this is what Jesus wants. This is the mission. The mission is catching and caring. And so John writes almost as a parable, but a true story, parable of the gospel of the church. And what's to happen? The risen Christ is at the helm of the launch and mission of his church. Uh, be assured of this. Matthew said it, Mark said it, Luke said it, John has said it, and John gives extended coverage of it. For those who may have been wavering decades after, are we really doing the right thing? Because there's a lot of trouble. There's a lot of hassle. There's a lot of persecution. Should we give this thing up? Or, or is, is this something we should be doing? And John with this says, no, Jesus is about this. Let me assure you, Jesus is about this. Carry on. Continue. And so this morning, I want to I share three scenes with you and three lessons Three scenes that, that leap out of this chapter, this final epilogue. And, and scene one has the originals, long before any of those movies were out. The, these are the originals, these disciples, these are the originals. Simon, Peter, Thomas, Nathanael, the Zebedee brothers, James and John, two other disciples, likely Nathanael, uh, likely, um, Philip and, and uh, the, the Galilee boys, um, Andrew. So you've got, interestingly here, um, only Thomas wasn't part of the Galilee gang, 
And here they are at the Sea of Galilee. They're still together, this group. They've added Thomas. Not accidentally, the Lord brings Thomas to this event. So you've got the, the doubter and the denier and the Galilee boys. All right, that's what you have here, the originals. They were at the beginning when Jesus called the first group. And here they are at the end. They're still together after all these years. And Peter decides to go back to his day job. Or should I rephrase it, his night job. Because fishing was a night job. I hope you know that this story isn't about fishing for fish. It is, but it isn't. This story isn't about feeding sheep like a farmer feeds those things with wool on them. I hope you understand that, that there's a bigger story going on here that's illustrated by these things that we understand, fishing and feeding sheep, catching and caring. That's what this is about. This is a gospel parable. And they caught nothing. These expert fishermen went out that night. They caught nothing. We all know already as we start out the story. This is a setup. We, we know what's coming. Uh, God has set up our lives many times. You've been here before when you've been doing something and you realize, you know what? I think God is in this because nothing's working out. Surely he's trying to get my attention. So they caught nothing. The best of fishermen, working very hard under the right conditions. And there's a guy standing on the shore who calls out, friends, <laughs> any fish? Now, there isn't a fisherman alive in the world that wants anybody to ask them if they caught anything when they caught nothing. Nobody wants, you come in your boat, you come in your boat, you got fishing tackle all over the place, the best of fishing boat you drive in, and there's some you know, bystander, catch anything? Ugh, come on. You want to be able to say yes. So it's no. It perhaps felt to them like some guy standing on this, the shoreline rubbing it in. I think their no was probably not a nice no. I don't know. But let me say the first lesson that, that we'll look at here is this. If you are to be used of God to receive Christ's catch of people, you have to learn to depend on Christ absolutely. Wait, what's the lesson here? What is, what is Jesus teaching them? This shoreline beachcomber tells them to do something completely absurd, okay? Follow along with me and watch what he says here. Friends, haven't you any fish? No. Cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, to any trained fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, this was an absurd idea. Let me, um, most of you are familiar with the, the last time Jesus did this back in the Gospel of Luke. You remember what happened? He told them... They fished all night, they caught nothing. He told them to lower their nets and they filled their nets up. But he told them to lower their nets. It's different. This time he tells them, cast your net. I'm gonna make a big deal out of this because it is a big deal. So any of you who have seen commercial fishermen, you know what fishermen are, the Sea of Galilee. They, they, would, they would team up with two boats and they would have um, what's called a compound net. And they would share the, the, the nets together and they would lower the nets and encircle a school of fish and then draw the nets in with using two boats. And then they would take their casting net, which is a smaller net, and throw it into the already corralled fish and then gather those fish into their boats. Their boats were small. There's an example of a boat in, in uh, Magdala, Mary of Magdalene, to, to this day. 
26 and a half feet long by seven and a half feet wide. It's not a big boat. So these two boats would encircle the fish and then they would cast their net into this harvest of fish. What the beachcomber is telling them to do, and it would be done at night, the fish can't see. What this beachcomber is telling you to do is just take your casting net and make a random cast on the right side of the boat in the middle of the day, or at, well, at, at sunrise, and you will catch fish. Now, I have no idea, other than the prompting of the Holy Spirit, why these seasoned fishermen would listen to this guy and do that. Because they didn't know it was Jesus. <laughs> we know that. They did not know. So, this random cast, no chance there will be anything. It's the wrong way to catch fish. And you know what the results are. The net was full. 153. Now, that number must mean something. J Jerome, in his day, said that that represented to the ancients the full number of the species of fish, 153. The symbol that Jesus has promised to catch someone from all the nations. It also says the net, that, that, that none were lost. The net was not torn. So of those that Jesus will reach, none will be lost. Somehow, this beachcomber found the sheep, or found the fish, I should say. I'm getting ahead of my metaphor found the fish and somehow those fish decided to go into that net now all these are pictures and symbols that should not escape us this is our evangelistic God sharing his vision on how the church will be formed It is the Lord. It is the Lord. Says, uh, likely John, even though he doesn't want to admit it for most of his letter. So on their own, expert fishermen, fishing the right time, lots of sweat equity, expertise, nothing. By the Lord, Abundance in impossible conditions. That's the message the Lord gives to the church. Don't, don't worry about your abilities or lack of abilities or your expertise or all your hard work or all of that. If the Lord is in it, you will have a successful catch. If you obey the Lord, he will cause your activities to succeed and you will experience his presence as well. What did he, does he say to them? Come and have breakfast. Let's fellowship together. Somehow, although they recognized it was the Lord, they did not recognize his appearance. We're, we're left a little bit confused here when it says none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They had already been, it had already been declared who, they, who he was. He, this is the Lord. John shouts, screams it out. Peter dives into the water. But somehow his appearance was, was different. And we're left to, to, to assume that in the resurrected appearance of Jesus, somehow he was slightly different in how he looked. Now, it says to us that this was the third appearance Remember, we've taken a look at the first two appearances, Easter Sunday night, the Sunday night one week later, and now here, both in Jerusalem and now in Galilee is the third appearance to the disciples of the resurrected Christ. Scene two, 
As Jesus centers his attention on Peter, do you notice here, as soon as Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, Peter tightens up his bathing suit and jumps into the water in a huge hurry. He's in a hurry to get to Jesus. Some would stay in hiding and shame after what they had done. But Peter, it appears, has something to prove. Uh, we're reading between the lines here, but I think it's, he's embarrassed by his failure and he's anxious to make it up to the Lord. That's what it feels like to me. I, I, think, he's, I think he's wondering about some questions. Does, does he still like me? Will he, will he have anything to do with me? Could, could he possibly trust me again? Are we good, Lord? You know when you've messed it up with some friend or whatever, you ask, hey, you know, are we good? Is it going to be awkward between us? So, so here's this this wounded warrior of the Lord. And Jesus, it, it appears that now the, the story is turning in its attention, particularly to Peter. That the, the whole escapade is choreographed by the Lord, mostly for the rest of the story with Peter. I, I think the, the lesson here, as we move, move our way through and we have the questioning of Peter and all of that, I think the lesson in this scene is this, caring for Christ's catch requires being moved from unresolved failure to God's grace in healing and from personal kingdom dreams to unconditional love for God. Let's look at why I conclude that. What's the first sensory event that happens to Peter as he comes out of the water and onto the shore? I think it's the smell of a charcoal fire. Because it says in verse 9, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Now, why do I highlight that? You know that smells bring memories. When was the last time that a burning charcoal fire was really memorable to Peter? Do you remember? The night he denied Jesus, he was standing beside the fire pit at the high priest's house denying his Lord. And at that moment, as he denied him for the third time and the cock crowed, do you remember what happened? Jesus turned and looked at Peter. I'm sure that Peter was still reeling from that look. And when he smelt that fire and saw Jesus looking at him, I can't help but think that hugely disappointing moment in his life flooded his memory. And we all know for sure that Jesus knew. Now when Peter saw Jesus at the fire pit of the high priest turn and look at him, I'm sure that Peter could only see utter disappointment in the eyes of Jesus. And we're about to find out that that's not what it was. When Jesus turned and looked at Peter like he looks at us when we fail him, he, looked at us, he looks at us and is reminded that we are just dust. We're dust bunnies. That's what we are. Tossed to and fro so easily. 
And Jesus was looking at him with care and compassion. I'm sure the crushing order triggered, order triggered him to full-blown insecurity. But then Jesus, watch, watch what Jesus does. Jesus launches a minor mission. And this is what he'll do for you. He launches a minor mission to put Peter back in the game, to start to bury his betrayal. Jesus says, um, bring some of the fish you've just caught. And who goes and does it? I mean, I think Jesus generally addressed them, but maybe he looked at Peter, go bring some fish. And Simon Peter quickly climbs aboard and drags the net ashore. He, you can't carry it, he's pulling it through the shallow waters. They wanted to keep the fish alive anyway, keep them fresh. They'd leave them in the net in the shallow water. He pulled them up in the shallows. Talks about how many there were and he grabs one. They were big fish, large fish, not puny little sardines. When Jesus does the work, by the way, it's great work, right? Bring some of the fish, so Peter, Peter does. I'm thinking at that moment that Peter is thinking about the last time this event occurred, back in the heydays of when the disciples were energized and when things were great. And he remembers that Jesus has done this before. And he remembers that Jesus said to him and to them, you think this is something. I'm gonna make you guys fishers of men. See, Peter had, I think, given up on the dream. He went back fishing. But now he hears the Lord, or now he sees the Lord, and now he hears in his memory, I'm gonna make you guys fishers of men. Peter thought, but that was then. I disqualified myself. I, I'm not in this game anymore. After all, look at these guys. I, I've been humiliated in front of them. Everybody knew of Peter's failure, everybody. It is the incident that's written in all four Gospels. Guys, did you have to all write about it? I mean, seriously. Think about if your failure was immortalized for 2,000 years of Scripture, handed down. Rick did this. And everybody writes about it. How do you come back from that? His cowardice. He can hear that, what they're thinking. Oh, yeah, Peter, uh, we remember Peter. Oh, he says to the Lord, oh, maybe all these other guys will run away. Maybe all these other guys are cowards, but I'll never leave you. In fact, I'll die for you. Oh, yeah, we remember Peter. Oh, yeah, big bravado Peter. If we all failed, he sure wouldn't. So Jesus, knowing all of this after breakfast with the other guys around, decides to have a conversation using a stage whisper so that all the other guys could hear. Do you truly love me more than these? Now, I have taught this a few times, and usually when I've taught this, this section, I've sort of leapt on it without having gone through all of John. I think I know better now. And I think the whole movement of this is to bring Peter to an awareness or remind him of the history, but take him on a journey to bury the past, where it belongs under the covers of God's forgetfulness. And so I'm convinced that when Jesus says, do you love me more than these, he's still on the same story. And the these are not the fish and not fishy, not career. I've done, gone all of those directions before. I think it's these guys. 
because a month ago, and by the way, we're in a short time span here. This isn't a long time span when, when this is recorded because Jesus was gone soon. So this is a short time span. Do you love me? Do you truly love me, Peter, more than all these guys? Because remember, that's what you said a month ago before you failed. And I'm not taking the time with you today, but I do want to point out that in your text, it's, it's, you'll notice it says, do you truly love me once? Then it says in verse 16, do you truly love me twice? And then the final one is, do you just love me? It doesn't say truly love me because the strength of the love has been taken out of it. Jesus asks him, the first time he asks him, he asks him, do you truly love me? In other words, do you have this committed, unconditional love for me, Peter? Like you claimed that you would die for me, that all the rest would leave me, but you wouldn't. Do you, do you truly have that? And Peter says, well, you know that, I'm, that I, I love, but he doesn't use the same word for love. He says, well, you know that I, I love you like a brother, and then he says to him, do you truly love me with this committed, unconditional love, Peter? Well, you, you know that I love you like a brother, Lord. And then the Lord allows that because Peter is finally being honest about who he really is. Lord, I don't have the capacity to make that kind of a promise to you in my own strength. You'd have to do something for me. So Jesus says, do you love me, Peter, like a brother? And he's a little bit hurt that he would ask him again because it feels like, and he says, Lord, you know that I love you like a brother. So the three times are the three denials. And Jesus buries every one of them. in front of all of his friends and commissions Peter to feed his lambs, to care for his sheep, to feed his sheep. It's interesting, he starts first with lambs. Those are little children sheep. Jesus cares about the summer ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, by the way. Feed my lambs. Peter is at a crossroads, and so is the mission, because Peter is a leader. Peter decides to go fishing, all the guys go fishing. Jesus is critically putting Peter back in the ministry because of his influence and impact. Now let me just give you a little sidebar here on spiritual failure because it's unlikely that there's any of us who haven't failed the Lord. It's what you do with it, it's what you, how you respond to it, it's how you respond to God's work in your life after it that matters. I've seen this over the year, the decades that I've been in ministry. I've seen three different ways of handling this and all of them are wrong. And the one is that some people when they spiritually fail, they, they, they run away and stay hidden. Virtually abandon the mission. They, they disqualify themselves and that's it. They never ever get involved in ministry again. I'm talking about your giftedness, your ministry, the ministry that God has called you to, every one of us are called to ministry. They run and hide and become obscure. The second example that I've seen is people languish in shame. They feel exposed, like everybody knows my failure. They're unable to face the community. They lurk around the margins of Christian community. They don't, they don't completely hide. They lurk around the margins of Christian community, living in the shadows of their failure rather than coming out into the joy of Christ's acceptance. And they make feeble attempts at representing the magnificent glories of Christ, but they do it with shrunken hearts. This is not good either. 
There's a third type. They've miserably failed Jesus, and now they attempt to make it up to him. And I think Peter was going to be this guy, except for what the Lord did in his life. So they attempt to make it up to him by becoming overly dogmatic, hard, lacking in grace, hypercritical of others who aren't super zealous for the mission. They have little joy, just hard work, intolerant of others who fail just like they did, working off their guilt through harsh conservative penance. That type exists too. Peter could have become that. You could become that. Maybe some of you here are that or listening are that. Jesus doesn't want that. And he stepped in to preemptively prevent Peter from becoming any of those three. How does he do it? By telling Peter, you can't fix things. You can't hide. You can't remain awkward. Go feed my sheep. Love me. Peter, just love me. You can't make it better, Peter. You can only get better. And you will get better if you love me with all of your heart. You've learned that duty makes you a coward and dreams can cause you to be fickle. But unconditional love will make you gracious and caring. So love me. And you will have a rejoicing heart. John 16, 22. A rejoicing heart from someone who is deeply loved by Christ. Beloved, listen to me. However you have failed the Lord, there is a way back with Christ. He invites you back. He tells you that he loves you. He tells you that he makes things right. He will give you a rejoicing heart again as one loved deeply by the God. Well, so Christ moves us from our paralyzing preoccupation with our history and our hurts so that out of them our rejoicing heart will be usable to do the same for others. You won't be able to care for others. You won't be able to feed sheep. You won't be able to care for lambs if you are buried in your own hurts and history. So allow Christ to set you free from that and come out from your hurt and help people who are hurting. There's a final scene, scene three, the rivals. One more thing, Peter, I need to clear up with you. You're a competitive guy. Lots of rivalry with the other guys. We see this through the whole Gospels. What, you know, what, what, what about this? Can I be on your right hand? Can I be on? Lots of rivalry between these guys. And Peter, you like to call the shots. And one day people are going to shut you down. And, and they're going to lead you where you don't want to go. And, and, and they're going to stretch out your hands. And it's likely that this was crucifixion that Peter died. How Peter died. And John, of course, is recording and puts this, this um, uh, parenthetic note in. Because he already knows that Peter has died. He already knows how he's glorified God. The mission can't go forward until unhelpful comparisons and petty rivalries are no longer part of who you are. Notice what Jesus says to Peter. Peter, you must follow me. Then he says to Peter, follow me. Peter, follow me. Follow me. What's the first thing that Peter does? When you're following somebody, what are you supposed to be doing? Where are your eyes supposed to be? Fixed on the one you're following. Fix your eyes on Jesus. What does Peter do? The first thing he does he turns and looks at John. It's, it's almost, it's comical if it wasn't sad. Peter turns and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how it's stated here. And that's exactly right. There was this rivalry. John was beloved and Peter knew it. John was good and he didn't ever did anything wrong and except maybe the one time when the Zebedee brothers called about calling down thunder. But that, you know, we've forgotten all about that and, and, and let's not even think about that. Peter was impulsive, an action guy, willing to storm hell with a squirt pistol. That's who Peter was. 
John was insightful. Peter was a powerful preacher. And it became an old shepherd. Jesus said, follow me, Peter. That means denying yourself. That means putting that fishing career behind you and following me into the career I have for you. It means, it means taking up your cross, which means it's going, there's going to be sacrifice, Peter, so that you can be free to follow me, so that you can be free to fix your eyes on me, Peter. And he turns and looks at John. What about him, Lord? What about this man? Jesus doesn't have room for a whole lot of compassion at this moment. And I believe he says in a fairly strident way, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Stop looking all over the place, Peter. Stop looking to see what John is doing. Stop looking to see what James is doing. Stop looking to see what Bartholomew is doing. Stop checking out their Facebook and seeing what they're doing for the Lord. You must fix your eyes on me, the author and perfecter of your faith. Because, Peter, you all belong to me. And I've given you different gifts. I've given you different assignments. I've given you all different seasons of ministry. Just the way I want it. What is it to you what Sister Mary is doing? What is it to you that Brother Gary is doing? What is it to you? You follow me. Since Jesus dishes out the gifts and solely determines the seasons of our service, rivalries and comparisons are extremely distasteful to Jesus. They get in the way of the mission. And you will find yourself quickly squelched by him should you choose so to engage. Jesus loves his whole church. He loves every one of you. He loves you how he has made you. He loves you're differently gifted. You're differently assigned. You have different seasons of mission. Just as he wants you to have. Exactly where he wants you to be. Exactly when he wants you to be. Exactly how long he wants you to be. You look at Jesus. Jesus and his church are a package deal. He loves his bride. Critique it at your own peril. Reform the church, absolutely. Trash the church, you better look out. So from a human perspective, as we wrap this up, Jesus gave bad fishing advice that day. <laughs> but he wasn't calling Peter to fish better or to try harder. He was calling Peter to faith, just like you and me. The mission of the church isn't about good technique or ministry savvy, nor is it fueled by guilty people shamed into service, nor can it thrive in an atmosphere of gift and assignment rivalries. It's not about working harder or even smarter. The mission of the church is about Jesus and his gracious healing and total dependency by faith on him. I roughly paraphrase Gary Berg in his commentary when he says, the church is a healed people in spite of our history and our handicaps, living the truth, honest and open, in the light, Fleeing sin, forgiven, transformed, being transformed, employed in the mission of finding people who we are called to net and then to nurture them to grow in Christ.
These things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace to us. Lord, this incident with Peter is such an encouragement to every one of us who stumble. You don't want us to run and hide and forever be gone. You don't want us to lurk around in the margins of ministry always with a heavy heart. You don't want us to become those who try to prove to you that we can do it, that we can make things right with you by becoming ungracious and hard and Lord, we aren't to be people who pay some sort of conservative penance in our lives. You want us to turn from our sin and receive your grace and serve you with unconditional love because you love us. So I pray, oh God, that we will receive our full healing as a church and minister from the platform of rejoicing hearts, catching and caring for people. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. So how can we find the lost, feed the found, and follow Christ? We find the lost by depending completely on Christ because what we do is God's work. We feed the found by unconditionally loving Christ so that we can feed them from a rejoicing heart. And we follow Christ by fixing our eyes on Him so we won't become distracted by what everybody else is doing. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, today is the day of salvation. Stop unbelieving and believe. I'll be here at the front to pray with you this morning. Father, I thank you so much for your great love for us. You are a great and awesome and mighty God. And the Savior, Jesus Christ, is gracious and kind and welcoming and empowering and loves us. And we love him. We love you, Lord. Thank you, in Jesus' name.